Recording in room 262 of the Texas Tech University School of Veterinary Medicine, this is the Rate of Vet Podcast. Today, Dr. Clayton Cobb will be interviewing the Dean of the Vet School, Dr. Guy Lonerega. And I'm here with Guy Lonergan today, uh, first guest for the pilot podcast, see how things go here, to kind of introduce a little bit about Guy, grew up in rural Australia, right? Correct, uh, yeah. Okay, I thought I caught the accent, just making sure. And uh, you got introduced to veterinary medicine from your father. That is correct. Okay, and through all that, though, somehow or another, you winded up here in the States, got the PhD, epidemiology, now winologist, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, very close. Yeah. Enologist, yeah. yeah. Winology. Study, study of wine. I made that. And uh, then you came to West Texas A&M. I would say the winology was 2019. A&M was 2002? Yeah, so I started at West Texas A&M here in Canyon in 2002, really the end of 2001. Mm-hmm. And what did you do over there? Same thing? I, mostly research. Uh, it, it was fantastic. It was a great job. It was a fun place to begin a career in academia. And uh, the research was primarily focused in livestock production, uh, food safety, public health related aspects, but primarily livestock production. And then there was a big move in your life, you'd say, I would reckon to say one of the more important parts of your life, 2010, coming to Texas Tech, where you met me and everything got better, right? It did. It did. Because of me. It did, despite because of you. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, in 2010, the real opportunity came to move to a research intensive university and the opportunities with that was that it would broaden the horizon of you know what i could accomplish if i um, had the 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 broader access to all the tools that a big university has but it also allowed me to collaborate with a much wider group of people from chemical engineers to food scientists to across the board. So it was a really great opportunity and one that was just too good to pass up. And so I know you've kind of told this story before, but how did the animal science work its way into wine? Just out of curiosity, before we get to the real important stuff. Well, good. I'm glad that you brought up wine into this conversation, (laughs) particularly at this time in the conversation. So we had the uh, really good opportunity to hire in a postdoc and uh, Marie Bugarel, she had just finished a PhD in France. She was a and is a brilliant scientist, and she came across as a postdoc. Uh, but she also had a significant other, Mathias Bugreau, and he had done a master's in molecular bi- biology, but he'd done a second master's in enology, which is the production of wine. And so was we really on. wanted him to come here. And one of the areas was uh, thinking about a PhD and how we might support the local grape industry and the nascent wine industry of the High Plains area. And so he started research projects looking for and cultivating natural yeast or wild yeast that would do a complete fermentation of the wine grapes in the region. And it was a great project. And so I got to participate in some research that I never thought I'd get to participate in. And then that was kind of in the middle of this whole vet school idea, is that correct? Yeah, sometime in 2014, uh, I was asked to think about how tech might increase its research activities. 
And in looking at all of the land-grant universities across the US, if you rank them by research activity, uh, those at the top usually have a vet school. And there's a reason for that. Um, typically, they're a bigger university, but also vet schools become a melting pot for schools of medicine, schools of engineering, departments of chemistry. And uh, so at that stage where we went through the data, I was encouraged to think about how we might participate in veterinary medical education. But also at the same time, we had just brought on a new chancellor of the Texas Tech University system, uh, the former senator, Robert Duncan. And he had an interest in tech participating in veterinary medical education as well, unbeknownst to me. But then we had the chance to meet and talk about it in 2015. Gotcha. So with this veterinary medicine, seeing that you had kind of grown up in it, experienced in Australia, came over here, continued animal science, uh, and then spreading that into public health, One Health, a little bit of everything in there. What do you think drove you to push towards veterinary medicine and the start of the school and everything else? Well, I, I think in, in the context, I had really left veterinary medical education and veterinary medicine to a large degree. After the graduate training at Colorado State, I went into an animal science program at West Texas A&M. And then I went into animal science at Texas Tech and I was very happy there, would still be very happy there and had no intention to get back into the veterinary medical education side. And so when we started down this process, it was always my intention that I would contribute to the point that other people came in and took over. Uh, but then after a while, it sort of rekindled the love of veterinary medicine and what it can be and what it could be. And uh, when the leadership at Texas Tech uh, really, really supported this effort and really encouraged this and got behind it and got behind the vision, that really became an enjoyable process. And it got to a point of, do I really want to work on this and then bring in people to take it over and then walk away from it. And the answer was no, I wanted to be a part of it as it continued to grow because this really was something that rekindled my love of veterinary medicine. And not that it was ever gone, it was just that I, it, it was an opportunity to rekindle it and um, it worked out really well in that regard. I can, I can relate to that. I, can, I think if I look back to grad school and research, I'd kind of left that to go into veterinary medicine. And then given the opportunity, I realized research wasn't done. It was just kind of laying dormant and being in the right opportunity, the right time, things happen. If you were to look back at those times of getting this whole thing restarted and rekindled, what kind of names come to mind of people that really helped out in the process at early? Well, there's a lot of people. Obviously, the chancellor at the time, Bob Duncan, he had an amazing ability to very quietly build a team and give a vision to the team and keep the team focused on the vision. Uh, he could bring in people, but he was always one who wanted to take the high road. He would never get down and fight uh, dirty. He wanted to always present the data, present the arguments, and let the, let everything speak for itself. So he was a man of integrity and a person that did an amazing job. But there's also Ted Mitchell. Ted Mitchell, the current chancellor of the Texas Tech University system, he 
uh, is just someone who is an amazing leader in his own right, an MD, a very accomplished person, uh, an accomplished professional, but he has the ability to also rally the troops and keep them on track. Um, and then obviously our own university president, Lawrence Gouvernerk, the, the former provost, Mike Gallion, great people, great leaders that bought into the idea and continued to support it in the good times and the bad. But then there were people outside um, the program as well that really encouraged us to continue. Uh, Mayor Ginger Nelson up here in Amarillo is a, uh, you would get behind her and walk across hot coals for her. She's just a fantastic leader. And there are countless people in the community, in the veterinary profession, Kenan Sturgis, Tim Polk, um, Stephen Gola, Rick Wall, lots of wonderful people that really came together behind this vision and got to support it either with their reputation, you know, with their money, uh, with what they were willing to give up and put on the line. So there's countless of people, but uh, there's lots of really good ones we could talk about. And I love that you mentioned a lot of those people because I know a lot of those people from the professional and personal level too. And just looking at everything they've committed to and then looking at where I started at Texas Tech and wanting this and going to vet school at A&M and looking back and thinking, man, this is really happening. It's pretty uplifting, pretty cool. Um, so for the next thing, kind of getting down the nitty gritty of this school itself, can we discuss, I guess, pretty directly about the mission of the veterinary school and what it means to you? Well, the mission... Um... The context is I grew up in rural Australia. We had a cattle ranch. My dad had an embryo transfer uh, program. He was a veterinarian. And we considered ourselves a big community. Mudgee is a town at that time of six or 7,000 people. We felt like we were a big regional community. Uh, and at that stage, rural veterinary medicine in Australia was one that needed a lot of help, just like it does here. And then I went to Colorado State University, and while livestock production was always very important, um, particularly in Colorado and to the school, the focus was clearly on the subspecialties, cardiology, oncology. And so when we started down this program and, and Chancellor Duncan talked about the needs in rural Texas, in regional Texas, that really connected to you know, my background, who I am. and the ability then to really build a program around a very narrow focus. And if you distill our essence of being as a school down to its core elements, there are two parts. One is how we better serve the veterinary education and the veterinary service needs of rural and regional communities. And the other one is access and affordability. And those two items go hand in hand. In hand. And that really has driven all aspects of the school from the early framework of thinking about recruitment and admissions, the curriculum and the clinical year or the community-based experiential learning to actually the structure that the faculty and the staff have come in and implemented, developed and refined and now really have walked the walk in delivering this, you'll see that it's still down and, and works towards those core elements of our essence of being. And I think that is important because it differentiates our school. Many people ask me, what's the difference between your school and other schools? 
And I said, you know, you have to look at our mission. Being the second vet school in a state is a liberating thing. The first program in any state has to be something to everyone. The second school does not need to try and replicate that and shouldn't try and replicate that. And so service to rural and regional communities is not part of our mission. It's our whole mission. And so that allowed us to build a very tailored structure. Uh, and, you know, one of the exciting things is, is that 70% of our incoming class call their home community either a rural community or a sparsely populated community. And that's radically different from every other program in the country. I think that's a great point. And that's what was stated in Texas Co-op recently was it's nice being that second best school in the state because in a situation like that, you don't have to cater to everybody. You can cater to those communities that are at need or underserved. So speaking of the incoming class group that we have here, we're on week three, I believe. How do you think it's gone? I think it's gone fantastically well. I was asked what during the orientation week, which is a fantastic celebration, what my role was come next week, the first week of class. And I said, my role is to stay out of the way. We have a brilliant team, a team that has far and away exceeded anything that I could have imagined. And they are the best people to now implement this program. So my job has really been to, to some degree, step aside. And that's a hard thing to do, but it's been to step aside and let the people who have prepared to teach to start teaching. And I think it's gone really well. Walk around the corridors and you see the students using the break rooms, they're studying, uh, they've found a way to creep upstairs to the faculty floor and, and they're using all of the rooms up here. But the, the students are just fantastically, they're fantastic. They're taking this program very seriously. I'm hoping they're having fun as well, but the faculty and staff are doing an outstanding job. And that's not to say we don't have teething problems that we've got to fix. Um, and, you know, all new programs, new building, new facilities will. But, you know, they're just problems that need a solution. And so we'll work through those solutions. And that's where I can continue to help. And I'll be honest about this for a few seconds. On week three, uh, as an instructor in the clinical and professional skills and in the introduction to animal care and husbandry, yeah, it, it's me coming back into it. It was a little worrisome at first, kind of, you know, shaky and. It's gone fantastic to the point where I don't know if I'm just really unqualified or if there's a lot better than what I was as a first year. It's insane. It, it's quite strange the way they handle ultrasonography and understand the concepts behind it. The facts that they actually have in their mind right now and what they know from their experiences out in those communities and with veterinary clinics is far beyond what I was capable of when I was probably a second year. And I don't know if that says a lot about me or a lot about them. What I'm really hoping is that it's the people that we brought in. It really is the students and the crop that we were able to go through the screening process, the interviews, and find these individuals that fit our mission is that we just got a 64 amazing students. Yeah, I also think it says a lot about you, Clayton. <laughs> but no, I, knew serious, I knew it. <laughs> but seriously, this is a fantastic group of students. And we had to say no to a lot of really good students as well. Yeah, that was And hard. so this next cycle that has begun, uh, we will begin reviewing applicants next month. And uh, there are a lot of good applicants there as well. So the next incoming class will be good as well. 
Yeah, I, I do agree with that. Going through the interview process and saying, why can't we just take them all was really hard to say. How are we going to get this down to 64? I mean, or that 60 plus or minus 10%. I mean, it was difficult. And to look back now and think, we got to do this again. I have to make that decision again. It's, it's a hard one to make, but it, it really it turns out great with the group that we have here. Speaking about students again, how are you as a student? Yeah, I'm going to preface this by, um, gotta be I honest. don't normally quote people, but I think it was George W. Bush, um, when he was the candidate for the president, he said, and he might not have said this, but I believe he said it, so I'm going to credit him with it. He said, when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. And when I was a student, I was young and irresponsible. So I wasn't probably the best student uh, role model for anyone in our class to follow, but I got through, right? I was always um, clever enough to get by as a student. Um, and I, I don't know if I was a bad student, but you know, when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. What's just get by? Were you like ABC? Is there? Oh, no, I, I always got good grades, except in my first semester. That's that transition from pre-professional, which in the Australian model is out of high school. So it's the UK model, which is a five-year vet program that you started after school. So leaving a, um, a boarding school where I was a boarder for six years in a very structured environment into uh, a, it, the freedoms of university and the trappings of all of the parties and all of the fun. My first semester was not the greatest semester academically and probably ruined my chance to win the university medal. Was there really a university medal? There was. And someone in our year, Craig Bailey, he, I think it was Craig, he was awarded the university medal. Why don't we get a university medal? Oh, I'm not in school anymore, so I guess we can't. It doesn't matter. And, so, ha and sorry, how many B's did you get in your program? Yeah, let's move on to the next question. Good, excellent. <laughs> um, so this, I really, you brought up Australia, being there in school and all that. So I had kind of a question that mixed in with your Australian background. And I guess I would say your passion for fruits, now that you're a winologist, there's a word for that, right? Uh, a wine drinker. Well, oh, okay. I think the, the, a wine the, researcher. Let's just call it a, a a wine consumer. Okay, wine consumer slash Australian slash everything. What is the deal with kiwis? Why don't Australians like kiwis? Is it a fruit thing or? It, well, no. I I think in Australia we have this rivalry with New Zealanders. Oh, that's and, what it is. And yeah, it, yeah. And it deals around. Uh, for me, it dealt a lot with rugby and the fact that they would whoop us every time we played them. And they're a little tiny country and they would just hand it to us. Still to this day? Uh, um, still to oh, this sorry. day. So, <laughs> you seem yes, sensitive about thank that. You. Um, so they, <laughs> New Zealand punch above their weight a long way in terms of um, their success on a global scale. And uh, so it was always rivalry. But since you know, live in the States. Now you're part of the diaspora and, and people confuse my accent with a New Zealand accent or a South African accent or an English accent, although they're wildly different from where I sit. Um, you know, we're all part of this broader diaspora of, of people coming from the Southern Hemisphere, other than obviously the British. Um, and 
So, yeah, we, we Australians who live abroad generally, after a period of time, come to appre appreciate New Zealanders, even sometimes like them. Really? So the rivalry is not as strong as what it was. Oh, it is when New Zealand oh. play Australia in rugby. For me, it is. But I know the outcome before the game starts. We're going to get it handed to us. Oh, every few that years, optimism is just palatable. Yeah, every few years um, um, we will win. And I'm hoping that I think it's this weekend Australia play New Zealand again. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, maybe it's not this weekend. But anyway, in the next game that comes up, which is in either this weekend or the next, I'm hoping for a win. But you know, I'm not going to allow myself to be overly disappointed <laughs> if we lose by a good 30 points. So given a tech football game plays at the same time as New Zealand against Australian rugby, which one are you going to watch? Well, naturally, we'll watch Texas Tech, right? The, good. The, good. Good choice. Yeah. Well, I don't know how easy it is to find the New Zealand-Australia rugby game either, though. Uh, it, it's, it's easy. Oh. Never watched rugby. I'm sorry. It looks fun. Those guys are crazy. There's, like, no pads or anything. Um, so next thing, we'll move on for this. Students that we have right now, they seem to be doing all right. Everybody's happy with them. I'm extremely pleased with them. What's some advice you would give them? There's one piece that you could provide. I, I think the most important advice is to have fun, right? This is, there's a lot of stress in any academic program, particularly a, a professional program like veterinary medicine. I think in years past or generations past, we've, as administrators, have probably added to that stress by just adding more information, adding more information. Um, we've tried to reduce that, and you know we've still got work to do to reduce it. Um, but you know the stress doesn't have to become distress. So there's lots of help available, but also the ability for students to switch off and do other things, whether they want to go to a rodeo or they want to go home and see their family or they want to just get away. There's no guilt in switching off and getting away and switching back on. You know, it's the old adage of working hard, playing hard. Um, this should be a fun program. The people you meet in vet school are gonna be friends for life. You're gonna be a professional network. So you may as well become friends around fun as well as friends around the professional um, components of the school. So take it seriously, but have fun doing it too. And advice you would give someone that's applying to vet school right now? The advice would be if this is your dream, then there's a lot of persistence and grit and hard work involved, but there's a lot of reward at the end of it too. And um, so if people are applying, you know, that's exciting, right? It's the start of that application process. For some, it might be their third time applying, but it's that persistence and that grit. But also if they're applying um, to us, realize that we're looking for a different thing in a student uh, than most other schools. So if you want to be successful in applying to our school, you have to demonstrate to us how you help us meet our mission. Uh, don't rely on us being able to divine it, right? You have to be able to demonstrate that to us. And then what advice would you give me? Keep doing it's, what you're doing. It's pointless, isn't it? <laughs> no, you're doing a fantastic job, Clayton. That's recording, right? I'm going to play that back. 
every morning when I get and up. I, and I will comment. I'm not your direct supervisor, so whatever I can say really doesn't affect any if you uh, can, annual evaluations that your direct supervisor. If you can put in some good quotes to Discania, though, it would be much appreciated. You know, yeah. just throwing that out there. So Australia, favorite holiday. Then we had the conversation before this started that it is officially spring there as of yesterday. Correct. And so with everything being flipped and not even being on the, what would we say, the solstice or equinox? They don't follow that, what the states do. So yeah, it's all so confusing spring, to me. You know, spring and fall begin on the equinox. Winter and summer begin on the solstice, I believe. Um, so I'm getting a nod from the producer. So we're obviously all right. Bruce Penn's so, happy. I'm going with um, it. So favorite holiday in Australia is actually Easter. In that... Uh, Easter is equivalent to the U.S. Thanksgiving. So it is obviously a religious holiday, but it's taken on a much wider role in that the holiday usually begins on Thursday and people travel and spend time with family and have celebrations and family time together. Uh, when another holiday occurs at the same time, it, it can make for a five-day weekend. So when Anzac Day... The, the what? Anzac Day, it's it's essentially Australian uh, Memorial Day. So Anzac is Australian New Zealand Army Corps, and it celebrates um, the trials and tribulations of Australia and New Zealand during the wars. And uh, when Anzac Day falls on the same weekend as Easter, or around the same weekend, it, it, it makes for something that is more akin to a Thanksgiving than you know, a simple religious holiday. And then being in the States now, what would you say favorite holiday? Oh, I, I, I particularly like Thanksgiving. <laughs> I think um, it's just centered around food and wine. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions, okay. Clayton. Uh, <laughs> so that is always a good one. You know, Christmas um, is always a fun time of the year, although it's in the wrong season. For me growing up, Christmas should be around summer. It's, you celebrate Christmas eating shrimp and oysters around a pool, uh, around beaches, and, and that's the way Christmas should be, as far as I'm concerned. I wish it was like that year-round. Yeah, well, in some parts of the world, it can be. Costa Rica. Um, yeah, so, uh, but no, I like that, but I, I also like summertime too, so 4th of July is always a, a good holiday. I enjoy it, I enjoy it. Another important question. Just going back to the original. What's your sign? I don't know. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the answer. Were you prepared for that? December 13. You tell me what my I, sign is. Okay. Uh, All right. That's okay. So we'll, we'll skip. And really hoping you knew that right off the bat. Kind of threw me for a loop there. So when we're looking at the vet school and everything that we're kind of pushing towards and accomplishing, what do you think a, a good general next step for us is probably going to be? And what I mean with that is, let's say we fast forward 10 years from now, keeping the same, oh, you're a Sagittarius. Oh, well, thank you. I thank you, Michael. The, the, the new knowledge. So keep, well, I don't even know what that means, though. Never mind. So keeping the same course, we get 10 years from now, everything's going great. Are we talking to maybe pushing the same route as expanding, or would you say that the, the needs for Texas will be satisfied at that point? I mean, well, what are we looking at? Is this going to be an... Yeah, I think 
you know, you have a lot of goals, right? Mm -hmm. And in 10 years from now, our first class will be, have been out for five, six, seven years. And so that's when we really measure success. You know, if you look at the core elements of who we are, why we are, it's the veterinary education and service needs of rural and regional communities. The admissions committee in selecting those students have helped us be successful at that first part already, right? Veterinary educational for rural and regional communities. Then we will measure whether we're successful on the backside of that part when the students are five, six years out from graduation. So in 10 years time, we'll get to see um, that measure. But then also we are not just an educational program. We are a research driven school as well. And so we're working very hard to develop a really innovative PhD program around One Health Sciences. And I would hope that in 10 years time, uh, we've really started to do some great things in that world, but also built on the strength of where we are, whether that's with the livestock industries that are here, the communities that are here, but with the health sciences center that is right next door to us. In that uh, you and I've talked about uh, programs like Meals on Wheels, in that they you know, provide healthcare to many Meals on Wheels recipients, but many Meals on Wheels recipients have pets. So how do we think about whole patient care uh, for many members of our community who don't have that at the moment? So this whole One Health concept and One Health scholarship and research, I think in 10 years' time, we'll look back on and see the fruits of our labor, whether it's in comparative cancer research or it's in uh, livestock resiliency or it is how we better train students through educational research. There'll be a lot of things that in 10 years' time we will have uncovered, improved on, uh, published, and um, hopefully found some really important aspects. And just throwing this out there, and it may be a little off topic, but maybe not. Um, Tuesday evening, we had our TVMA membership committee meeting, and we were looking at the different issues within Texas, and one of them being the sustainability of the mixed animal practitioner of these new grads going out into practice and then having issues with burnout. And and I guess just the long-lasting effects isn't the fact that we are churning out more vet students, but what we need is more joyful vet students that we don't experience that burnout. And the way they put it, I guess, in perspective was we're looking at it like a bathtub. Veterinary medicine in Texas is a bathtub. The faucet's on. Texas A&M and Texas Tech are the faucet. We are putting vet students in there into the perspective of the bathtub. It's got water in there. The problem is the drain. It's not that they need to turn the water up higher. We can't do that. It's on as far as it can go. It's the drain. It's, the outflow is way too much exceeding what the inflow is. And that really kind of put it into perspective with me, thinking about the veterinary medicine in Texas and about the number of positions and people just begging for more employees and that really made me feel good in doing what we're doing with our focuses on some of these professional skills about turning out veterinarians that know what to expect and know what they're worth and know what their demand and can put them into these areas that need them that are, yes, 
I want to say need, but it's more than just a veterinarian in the community doing veterinary medicine. It's having those leaders within their communities. And I was proudly able to say as a member of the membership committee and then also as a member of the Texas Tech faculty is this is a problem we're looking at. And so that 10-year question kind of came into my head thinking, I want to see where we're at in 10 years. The membership within Texas, the number of veterinarians, and then our students that we're putting out into the real world and seeing how they're actually practicing and how things are going because I really have a lot of faith in this program and to slow down that drain so that we can help out those underserved communities and I guess me ranting a little bit about that how do you feel about it do you think it's an honest way to look at it or well you've obviously thought long and hard about this bathtub analogy <laughs> I have um, so we it can... was a good one no it is a very good one but you also also if you look at this um if you do the math and estimate the Texas needs about 20 to 25 new veterinarians per million population, um, Texas A&M and Texas Tech are still supplying less than half of that. And so um, we, uh, you know, we can do our part, but the big thing is that there are some things that we can't manage. We can't manage business change. We can't manage certain aspects of the profession. But we, there are certain things we can manage, and that is our place in the world and being adaptive to our place in the world. And that means how we stay attuned to the needs of rural and regional communities and we build on our program and adapt our program as the needs in rural and regional communities change. So I think in 10 years' time, we'll be successful if we really think about what we can manage and manage what we can manage. and and separate that from some things that we can't. And I know putting a frame of time, five, ten years, stuff like that, it, it's really difficult to do because I see it as more of like a monitoring program. You re-monitor and you adapt and change as you go down the road. And I, I really do have a lot of faith in this program. And for me personally, being from a rural regional community in Texas and working in rural regional communities in Texas, now being here, it's fantastic. Well, I can really say, Clayton, is. stick around and see, right? Well, I plan on it. Good. I'm not going to leave here unless you'll kick me out. So just throwing that out there. Is there anything, throwing it back at you, that you're curious about? Things that you want answered or questions you might have for us? Well, I, I think the answer is, or the question is, you know, where should this program be going? You know, one of the, the hardest things for me is letting things go, right? For a long time, it was a very small number of people working on this. And now we have a team of 55, 56, 57 people. And collectively and individually, there's far more talent in this team than I have. So, you know, I have to now start to learn how to turn things over. And so, you know, I, I guess I would ask, and hopefully you don't have to answer the question now, um, that you'll keep me honest and remind me to um, that, that you've got this covered, right? And, and I don't mind giving you a quick answer to that now. I have never worked with a more diverse and adaptable and competent group. Cruz Penn, back here with me, can attest for this, is us being adaptable and being able to get the feedback from the students on a weekly basis has been fantastic. Given our task and what we want to accomplish and we have our goals set, all we need is feedback from them to say, how would y'all want it? That we can teach better, that we can make this a better experience for y'all, that we can more easily and more 
effectively teach this course. And they've been giving us feedback. And as it's gone and they say, you know what, it'd be better if we actually learned better in the lab if it's presented like this. Fantastic. The next week we do that. How did that work? So much better. Everything's going awesome. That's how we learn. Great. What else? And being able to adapt literally week by week. And it's not just for me and clinical and professional skills. It's Michael Cruz Penn working in histology. Josh Rowe and Shireen working over in anatomy. Fritzler, uh, Kaye, Stour. I mean, everybody working together on this. It is constant communication by what you would think is services that are unrelated or not. We're all in this together and it has been fantastic working with the students, getting immediate feedback and saying, okay, next week will be different then. And we're finding a our spot and how this should work with our curriculum, with where we're going to go forth here and making it most effective as possible. It's, it's been awesome. So can I say the process we're working on? Sure. Can I tell you the end result? No, because it's going to be ever-changing and adapting until we get it good. And that's probably going to take the next step and say, let's make it even better than it was last year. Kind of what we're trying to do for anyways. Well, Clayton Danger Cobb, that sounds Clayton like an, Danger Cobb. Uh, an absolutely fantastic process. And I'm excited for you um, and somewhat jealous of you and hey, all that you're doing. And We can get you in there if you want to go back to teaching. I, I'm sure. And, and, and maybe I will. Um, <laughs> and you'll get the advice from the students that maybe that was a bad idea. So we'll work with that. We'll pilot one class first years. So we'll get well, you in there. Anyway, thank you. This has been the Raider Vet Podcast. For more information, visit the Vet School's Facebook page or email us to svm at ttu.edu.